morning. It's uh, good to have some of you college students back, except for Jenna, who's causing a ruckus already this morning. Just kidding. Uh, all right, so make your way over to the, the book of James. <clears throat> uh, you can find it. It's near the end of the New Testament, right? You find the book of Revelation, and you kind of go backwards a few books. You'll get there. Uh, and as I told you last week, we'd, we'd spend 17 weeks in James. That was uh, the best laid plans of me and mice or whatever. Um, well, we're going to bump it up to 18 weeks already here at week two of that. Uh, because our intention when we, when we work our way through a book of the Bible, right? When we are, we are getting into it, our intention is to understand it. Our intention is to be challenged by it, to understand it, to, to be changed by the book of James. Not just complete it off of, okay, we preached through that book. And, and so... Um, and, and so while the entire section, right, if you read ahead, you should be able to see it. The entire section of verse 2 to 12 actually fits together. Uh, I, I found it was necessary that we actually slow down here or, or we're going to cruise through it and not really take it in in the way that we need to. All right, so, so anyway, we're just doing the first four verses is what I'm saying, two through four, three verses. Uh, and so last week I told you that James was writing this letter to the, the Christian churches uh, uh, because he desires, right, to, to see them grow up and into maturity and in their faith, uh, to grow in their Christian walk, to be whole was an idea, right? Uh, uh, for the way that they live, to actually be in sync with their profession of faith. Those two things that come together in unity, right? Now, today, James is beginning uh, to lead us in that direction. And, and so we have this question, if we're working towards that, what's the very first thing that James is going to, uh, to get to, going to want to teach us right out of the gate? And, and, and where would you begin, if you think about this for a moment, where would you begin? You're writing a letter to gospel-believing Christians, right? These are not unbelievers, gospel-believing Christians, and you, and you want them to grow up into maturity in Christ. What's the first thing you're going to do? I'll tell you this much, probably, probably not what James begins with. I know I certainly would have, and you'll see it when we read it in a minute. Now, uh, he, he starts with one of the most audacious commands in all of Scripture, if you really think about what he's saying. Now, we've already covered verse 1, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read it again this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll read James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, enlighten our minds for the wonderful process of hearing your word, understanding your word, and through the work of the Holy Spirit within us, being changed by your word, so that we apply it to our actual lives, not just intellectually, but wholly into our lives. Father, make us hearers and doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes it helps to actually begin at the end of something so that you understand why you're going to go through an entire process, right, um, th that it takes to get there. Uh, for instance, this year, which unfortunately is a lot like last year for me, right? But this year, I have this goal that I want to lose fat and I want to lower my cholesterol. That's the goal that I have, uh, the results that I long for. And, and so I'm learning to, to eat a certain way that feels very counterintuitive. 
Uh, and, and that's challenging my, my, my default, just thoughtless way of handling food and exercise and things of that nature. But, but knowing where this, this new way of eating is leading me, right, the results that I want to see, uh, helps me to thoroughly engage with that difficult part, the steadfastness of not just thinking what you want the results to be, but actually working towards those results on a daily basis. I believe that's, that's true of our passage here. It begins with something very difficult, very unusual. And so it helps if we actually start at the end and think, okay, so where is James trying to take us here? Let's start with verse 4 then, right? James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? That's the goal. Now, wouldn't you love to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Now, that word perfect comes from the Greek word teleos. Uh, it's the, you know, uh, the word actually, look, if you look in your verse 4 here and you see the word for, right? Early in verse 4, that's the exact same word. So the same word shows up twice here in the Greek. And, and the word means complete, uh, to be whole, to be not divided, right? Not double-minded, as we're going to see in the passage next week. Now, in, in Deuteronomy 6, if you've got your Bible and get over there quick, go ahead and make your way over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> what's happening in Deuteronomy 6, we'll be right at the very beginning. Uh, here Moses is preaching to God's people, and, and he gives what has become known as the Shema, right? And Shema, we're going to go with some language words today. Shema, right? Because Shema is the Hebrew word for here, and here is the first word you're going to see there in verse 4 of, 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, listen to this. This is Moses speaking, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. Right? This is about God being whole. God is not divided, right? And you're like, well, come on. God is three persons, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yes. Uh, but one of the wonders, right, of the Trinity is the unity, the wholeness, the completeness within them. There's nothing outside that is necessary for them. They are whole and, and complete. Now, if you're in Deuteronomy still, right, have a look at what Moses says next. Uh, I want you to see the completeness, the wholeness that he calls him to. He says, listen, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. The, the idea of, of perfection here is, is not always without sin like we tend to think of it. You, you know this, I hope, you will never be without sin in this life. And until Jesus returns and glorifies you, Christian, you will continue to have sin in your life in one way or another. Yes, there is sanctification. Yes, there is progress. Yes, there's all sorts of what we might call, you know, victories or, 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 or growing in our obedience to God and his word, right? But, but we're always going to struggle with that. Um, and, and yet, we, we can become complete in Christ. There's a wholeness that we have through the gospel. Now, our Lord in Matthew 5, 48, he said this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, that's our, our James 1, 4 Greek word there, teleos once again. Perfect, complete, whole, right? It, you can get into this, right? But, but does Jesus mean sinless? Probably not here. You know, he says it in the, let me say it, right? He says it in the context of this teaching. He's telling his disciples, right? You must love your enemies. Don't just love the people who love you, your friends, all those easy people to love. Don't have this splitness in the way that you're applying God's call to love your neighbor, uh, but you're to love even your enemies. That's what he's getting at. In other words, don't be divided in, in the way you're, you're following the Lord here. 
And so the goal of James is desiring for, for, for you in verse 4, right? There is a, a completeness, an undividedness. He, he wants you and me to become spiritually mature Christians, to be healthy and, and fruitful followers of, of Jesus. So that's, that's where James is taking us to this maturity, this, this completeness, this wholeness. Now, how in the world is this taking us there? How is this helpful? Now, let's go back to verse 2. Um, Right, which other than the introductory verse that we looked at last week, verse 1, right, this is most likely the very first uh, sentence of the entire New Testament ever written right here. This is James's first of 54 commands to these early Christians, and what exactly does he say? Here's the command. He says, count it all joy, brothers. And I can't help but expect him to finish this sentence some other way, right? Count it all joy when, when the Lord gives you a wonderful covenant church family, right? Or, or count it all, all joy when, uh, when, when God provides for all your needs. Count it all joy, brothers, when, when the Lord makes you healthy and life is going wonderfully. Really, I expect him to finish this with just about anything besides what he actually finishes this, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now we know it's James, right? brother of Jesus, author of the New Testament. We know he's not crazy, but James, by normal standards, is a very strange person here. I mean, who says this? Really, James, right? Count it all joy when your, your flight gets delayed and you're stuck in DFW airport for 24 hours, right? Yeah, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you get the flu or COVID, when you're in an argument with your spouse. Are you counting that joy? Count it all joy when you unexpectedly lose your job, when, you, when you're struggling to conceive, when your, your, your boyfriend breaks up to you, when your, your children make foolish decisions and you don't know why or what to do. When you're diagnosed with something that could end your life, count it all joy, James? If I were standing in front of James when he read this, I'd kind of want to just punch him in the nose, right? And be like, count it joy, brother. This is your trial right now. I'm kidding, right? But, you know, what a strange thing for a man to say. You know, for the Lord to be saying to us as people through this man. Uh, so, so what are these trials exactly? Right? And the most obvious one is, is Christian persecution, right? That you are um, treated poorly because of your faith in Christ, right? The, the early Christians could build a castle out of the bricks that have been thrown at them. Uh, this goes far beyond persecution, though. Notice how, how various trials is there in verse 2, right? And, and if you look at verse 3, it, it parallels with verse 3, and it's uh, with the, the testing of your faith in verse 3. Trials are any situation that tests your faith, right? Big or small, uh, right? Is my faith real? Is it strong? I mean, certainly that broadens things into our daily experience. A lot of things are testing our faith in smaller ways. Now, a good friend moving away, that's a trial, right? A best friend unjustly angry at you? That's a trial. Your reputation at work being called into question. That, that's a trial. A difficult marriage, not knowing again, you know, how to help your child with some, some need, and that's a trial. Just the melancholy of, of a middle life or the loneliness of, of living alone or financial stresses or hating your job or an injury or, or struggling with your sexuality or, or long-term sickness or, or, or babies not sleeping through the night, right? These are all trials of various kinds. 
And some trials happen to us. They just happen to us. And some are brought about by our own foolishness. Some trials are small and then some are life-altering. And trials are whatever it is that is testing your faith right now. And we're going to come back to, to why that is. But, but the first thing that I want you to notice here is James doesn't say if you meet trials, does he? It's not an if there. Uh, look at verse 2, right? He says, when you meet trials of various kind, you and me, we live east of Eden. We, we live in a world that is under the curse. Our bodies, our minds are fragile. They are aging to begin with. Accidents uh, occur. Natural disasters are a very real thing. We, we live in a world with 8 billion people, right? Billion with a B, right? All of them prideful and selfish sinners. A lot of bad stuff happens. Trials will come. Now, I'm giving you a lot of Greek today. I don't usually do this, but today, yeah. Uh, in verse 2, where it says, when you meet various, uh, trials of various kind, uh, that word meet there, sometimes the Greek really comes alive. Uh, it's literally fall into, like a pit, like a, a trap of some idea, right? When you, when you fall into trials of various kinds, right? They come often very unexpected in, in your life. Uh, you know, your life, no matter how old you are, you probably have caught on to that. And so James here is calling you to count it all joy when you experience some sort of suffering. Thanks, James. Um, so is this, you know, Christian masochism, right? Th that idea of getting pleasure from pain? That's not what's going on here. Is this what is often called Pollyanna theology, right? You know where that comes from, that... Uh, the title character of, of Eleanor Porter's classic book, Pollyanna, right? Uh, you know it. She's incredibly happy about everything, no matter what, right? No matter what happens in her life. Or, and that's the question, right? Is James just saying, you know what, Christian? Put on a happy face. Smile. Just plaster the smile on, no matter what's going on, so that everything seems like it's fine. Or, or even only focus on the good things that are happening, right? Pretend uh, that suffering doesn't exist. Everything's great, no matter what. Right? You, you go to, to someone and say, hey, I'm sorry that you lost your job and that your house burned down. How you feeling? They're like, I'm great. Things are good, right? I didn't need that house and, you know, I didn't need those family photos and the cats were getting old anyway, right? It's fine. Now that's an extreme exaggeration, but sometimes, if we're honest, as Christians, we feel like we're not allowed to be disappointed. We're not allowed to be frustrated. We're not allowed to admit that we feel the pain of a fallen world. Kind of like that, that funny shirt. Laura's got it, right? It's fine. I'm fine. Everything is fine. It's written in a way, you know, nothing's fine. Right? And, and so this isn't, this isn't about just being, enjoying the, the pleasure of pain. It's not about Pollyannism, pretending everything's fine. So what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, it, it helps right off the bat if you understand one simple fact, and that's that joy is not happiness. They're not the same thing. They're very similar in the way that we see them in people, but they're not. It's gotten mixed up in our culture, those words, a lot, but they're just not the same thing. Uh, David Gibson explains the difference here beautifully. He says, happiness is circumstantial. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. But joy is the deep, settled knowledge that God is in this, that nothing he sends me, nothing is outside his care and his loving purposes for me. 
But sometimes it is hard to believe that, care, that God cares for you, isn't it? It's hard to believe that he has a, a purpose in whatever trial you're going through, especially when you're going through it. I'll be honest for a second. How do you naturally respond to trials in your life? Okay, when, when the heartbreaking news is received, when, uh, you know, regarding the anxious diagnosis or, or even just a frustrating situation of some sort. How do you respond? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Right? We, we don't just automatically grow closer to the God in these things. Like, oh, a bad thing happened. I guess I'm getting closer to God right now. Uh, right? In, in fact, our natural tendency is to be angry at God. Jerry Bridges once wrote, when, when calamity after calamity seems to surge in upon us, we are, we are tempted to doubt God's love. Not only do we struggle with our own doubts, but Satan seizes the occasions to whisper accusations against God. If he loved you, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Maybe, maybe you feel discouraged in the moment, defeated. You, you fall into self-pity, or, or maybe you're like, I'm going to fix this myself. Can't trust God. As I was studying this week, I was, I was met with a trial, a very small trial, right? It shouldn't even be a trial probably, but it was frustrating, it was disappointing. I, I wanted to complain about the issue. I, I wanted to wallow in my own self-pity, and I did uh, at first. I really did, to be honest. Um, now, <clears throat> I also, right, just kind of wanted to go down that, that spiral a little bit. Like, I just want to go eat something unhealthy for lunch and veg out for a while. And, and I probably would have in the past, right? And, and yet, here I am, and just marinating in this passage of, of James this week, and it was convicting, and it, and it challenged me, and and listen, this is why it is so important that you're in God's Word on a, on a daily basis, right? That it's, it's there for these moments. You wouldn't believe, if you find yourself, even just small portions of the Word, right? How it can just, it, God through His Word just speaks to the things going on um, in, in your life. So, so that's why it's important. And I say that because, you know what? Three weeks ago, I probably would have just gone down that, that straight down that path, to be honest. Uh, now, now, Right, to, to challenge our, you know, we've got to work, we're in God's word, right, to challenge our natural attitudes. It moves us towards sanctification, towards, you know, us being more like our Savior, more like Christ. Um, and, and so there I am, right, I have this passage staring me down like that incessant dog that won't go away until you do something with it, like throw the ball, whatever. And, and, and I've got to consider this little trial. This is the one that, that the Lord has put in my face. And I've got to count it all joy, but I don't want to. And, and that's, that, that's my, my point here, right? That, that counting suffering as a work of God that is worthy of joy in our lives, it doesn't come naturally. It's going to be very counterintuitive. But listen, in, in the eternal scheme of things, how you and I react to trials is far more significant than the trial itself. It really is. And I, I know so far I've kind of left you hanging you know, you want to know, okay, so what's it mean to count everything joy? How do I do that? Well, let's, let's start moving that way. First of all, it's an active command. You know what that means, right? It's not passive. It's not like just sit there and watch it and see what happens, um, right? It's, it, it means you have to have an intentional, active effort on your part. Trials happen, and we don't naturally have that sense of counting it joy, and so something needs to change. Uh, when trials come, right, they may seem like these, these random evil events in the world, that, and yet God reveals to us in his word that he is sovereignly involved in our trials. 
In fact, the only way that you and I can count suffering uh, of various kinds joy is when we absolutely know that God is in this. No, no matter how painful God is, 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 is the situation, we need to know that God is using it for a purpose, for our good. And suffering raises a significant question for us. Right at the most basic level, how do you think about God? Is God good? Right? Is he good in those moments when you're like, this is a God moment. Look how wonderful this is, right? But is he also good when your heart is breaking? And further, do you really trust that God is working for your good, for the good of your soul, for the good of your eternity, for the good of your, your church, your family, and, and so on? It's an interesting thing, right? The, a knife in the hand of an evil man can be plunged into the heart of another with evil intent to murder, right? That, that same knife, though, in the hand of a surgeon can be used on, on the heart of another with good intent to repair, to heal. This question, do you, do you trust that God is a surgeon and, and not an evil madman? Do you believe that even in the moments of, of most pain? That God is working through these trials for your good. Now Romans 8.28 always comes up in these, right? This is one of those verses that is incredibly helpful for, found, for a foundational for us that we live in this. It's not always the best one to throw at someone right in the midst of it if they're not really have that foundation to begin with. But Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And the reality is that all things working together for good sometimes just looks like a lot of bad things working for bad. We can't always see what's, what's going on here. And so what if you could view the next trial in your life, or the one that you're facing right this instant, what, what if you approached it uh, with a prayer asking God, how is this supposed to make me steadfast? H how is it working to change me, to perfect me, to complete, so that I might be lacking in nothing, Lord? See, the trials that God brings into our life are a lot of other things. There's many parallels in the world that, that kind of help us understand this. Like, uh, right, the pain of childbirth leads to a child. The pain of lifting weights leads to stronger muscles. Uh, the pain of physical therapy that, like, Nathan and, and Rob do, right, <clears throat> that minister to people, they're, they're doing it for their good, and yet no one ever comes in and is like, Nathan, Rob... I cannot wait for the excruciating pain you're going to put me through today. When you bend my knee further than it can currently go, I cannot wait, right? But they do want to be able to walk properly again. And so they count it joy that they get to go through physical therapy with these torturing people. Now, to quote Gibson again, he says, There is no perfection and completeness without suffering trials of various kinds. You, you may be so used to this idea as a Christian that you haven't paused here in James simply to reflect on its strangeness, that the road to perfection is the path of pain. The pain you experience from trials is real. It is. Don't ever belittle someone's pain. Uh, Jesus knows what it's like to mourn. You remember when Lazarus died? And he wept in sorrow because he understood the emotional pain, that, um, the weight of death that, that that meant right then, right? The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 15 instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're like, yeah, that's fine, let's do that, 
right? But then he says, and weep with those who weep. Feeling pain is part of the human experience. Mourning is, is good when we need to mourn. I would love it if we, if we as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, learned to do both of those things more. To come alongside and rejoice more and more with each other to celebrate wonderful things in that regard, but also to come alongside and, with people and their, their losses and mourn with them. Now pay attention, this, this is important, right? So if you dozed off, wake up. Uh, James here isn't telling you how to feel. Look at that, right? Verse 2, he's not telling you how to feel, he's telling you how to think which will impact your feelings, right? But they're not, the diff- they're not the same. James is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to learn to think different about the trials that you face. Which is important because you know when trials come unexpected, one of the first things we do is just stop thinking and start feeling. James wants you to push against that. He wants you to to think theological truth regarding whatever trial it is you face, to, to use rational, biblical thought in this moment to understand that when you enter into these situations, these situations that absolutely have capacity to crush you, that you stop and you remember that there is a way of thinking that will help you realize, help you remember God is present even in this, that, that He cares for you, that He is working even in this to make you His child whole and complete. You don't have to know what the end looks like. In John 16.33, Jesus says those words that have been a comfort to Christians from generation to generation to generation. He says, I have, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? So in the world, what are you going to have? Say it. Tribulation, right? Or whatever your translation says there, right? That means suffering and pain if you're not used to that word. But in Christ, what do we have? We have peace. Well, Christian, which are you in? The world or are you in Christ? It's not a trick question. You are actually in both, right? You're, you're citizens of, of this nation or Britain as it might be. I don't know how that works, right? But you're also a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Right now, you have tribulation in the world, but you also have the peace of Christ. You face trials, but not alone. You face trials, but they're not without purpose. These trials over a lifetime, in fact, when thought about rightly, they begin to make us steadfast. We can handle more is what that's getting at. Our faith is strengthened. It's made more solid. It grows us in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. That word steadfastness in verse 4 is about being able to carry a burden, right? Like your legs. If you've ever gone and tried to do squats with weights on your shoulders or anything like that, you think, oh, this is miserable, and it is miserable. But the whole thing that happens, or anything you try to carry, right, you get stronger and stronger. The next time you can carry more. The next time you can carry more, and you can endure more. That's how it works. James wants to see us become people who can handle the pressures of life as the Holy Spirit makes us stronger trial by trial by trial. There's a few things that trials teach us I want to mention before we, we finish here. The first is that trials teach us humility. The Apostle Paul was a, a godly man gifted for ministry. He was chosen by God to be an apostle, right? It would have been easy for him to be quite prideful. Don't you know who I am? I am an apostle, right? 
In 2 Corinthians, though, uh, 12, 7, he says that God gave him what he calls a thorn in the flesh. So some sort of trial. We don't know the details of what this means. But then he gives us the reason. We know why, right? He says that God gave him this thorn uh, was to keep him from being conceited, prideful. To teach him to humbly rely on the Lord and not himself. Now, now God has gifted you in, in some way, athletics or beauty or intelligence or music or wealth or, or being funny or work, working, working with woods or, you know, wood, uh, whatever. I don't know. It's some sort of gifting or maybe lots of them. And, and sometimes trials take those away for a temporary period of time or forever, right? And, and that can be a humbling thing that is good for our soul. Good for always drawing us back to the Lord to understand we're not independent individuals. We are desperately in, in need of the Lord all the time. Secondly, right, the difficult trials can teach us compassion. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, uh, Paul says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Shortly after moving to Kansas in 2006, uh, Laura experienced uh, a miscarriage. And, and while she was wrestling with that experience, it was one of those things that at first felt like, oh, I'm all alone. No one else has ever experienced this kind of, kind of sense. And yet women from the church suddenly came out of the woodwork to come alongside her and comfort her, uh, particularly and almost exclusively the women who had suffered that themselves at some point in your life. They were filled with compassion for someone they see going through the same thing. And, and do you know who ministers best to those who are in prison? It's those who have experienced prison themselves. Do you know how, uh, who best knows how to engage and comfort someone who's struggling with doubt or anxiety? Yeah, you see in this pattern, the person who struggled with doubt and anxiety and the Lord's brought him to it, right? This is true of medical struggles, divorce, uh, death of a loved one, whatever the issue, we begin to see that. Your trials put you in a place to compassionately, in a whole different way, be able to minister to others. And third, and most importantly, these trials prove our faith is authentic, which in turn does indeed strengthen our faith in the Lord. Or, or it proves, or brings up this question, am I really trusting in the Lord? Have I been? And that knowledge can be a catalyst whereby the Holy Spirit draws someone to Jesus. You know, in, in the heat of a trial, the, the, the Christian will realize that faith in Jesus is a far greater value than anything else greater than wealth, greater than health, greater than everything else. So why can we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Because it's strengthening our faith. Because our faith becomes more solid, more mature. We can see the end. We can see where this is taking us. And finally, our, our Lord Jesus actually models what we learn here. Right? Jesus faced the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. He experienced persecution at every single turn. Uh, his family initially was calling him crazy, remember? Uh, the established Jewish leaders sought to murder him. He was betrayed by his disciple Judas. He faced an incredibly unjust trial under the Roman government where they decided to execute him on a cross like, like a guilty criminal. A lot of trials, isn't it? And could Jesus count it all joy for the the trials of various kinds that he faced in his, his ministry? In fact, he could. And in Hebrews 12:1, we read this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
right? He can see where it's going. He was able, able to see beyond the temporal, to see what God was really doing through his suffering, like the redemption that he was accomplishing for the elect, through his suffering, through his death. So listen, trials will pass. And I don't mean that as a like, just slough them off, no big deal. I, I mean it, they really will pass. Even if they end in death, they pass. But your, your soul remains forever. And so often the, the trials are confirming that, that Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross, or exactly what he has accomplished for you on the cross. Namely, eternal salvation. And even in this life now, right, the trials that come upon you, they, they produce steadfast and in turn lead us to Jesus who makes us perfect, who makes us complete, who makes us lacking in nothing. So listen, this, this week you're going to face trials. I, I want you to start learning to think of them that way. We, don't, we just think of them as annoying things sometimes. Right? Broaden your understanding. You know, the next thing that really just becomes this incredibly frustrating thing, I want you to, to label that in a biblical way, using a biblical word, trial. Right? Again, whether it's something small or something life-altering. And, and you'll want to wallow and complain and scheme and maybe spiral, because that's what we like to do. Uh, but instead, this is where you actively participate. This is where you actively say, you know what? I know where my feelings are going, but, but it's time to think, to think different. In this moment, I need to believe the truth that God means even this for your good, even if you cannot fathom how. And pray to the Lord. Ask for comfort. Ask for, for wisdom. And grow in your faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we don't like trials in life because we don't. We'd avoid pain, but we do desire to grow strong to grow steadfast. We, we desire to be complete in you. We desire to have a, a robust faith. And so we ask that you would give us a view to see various trials as your sovereign hand, not some random roll of the dice in the universe. Make us to believe what is true, that you have good purpose in all the trials we face. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let's stand and sing together. My hope is built on nothing less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fills his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in.
We gather in one massive circle around the outside of the room. Go ahead and make your way there. As you're doing so, I want to read the words of institution. These are the, about Christ instituting, beginning the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we do today. Right? His body broken. And his blood poured out for our sin. I mean, when we come to this table, we are looking at... As I said in the, in the preaching of the word, right, that, that Christ went through various trials. We're talking about what is probably the most evil event in the history of the world, that an innocent man who's divine, the son of God, is nailed to a cross for having done nothing wrong. Not only that, right, what's happening theologically there is that he's taking on the sin of everyone. Your sin, my sin, the sin of your great-grandfather is that their faith is in Christ. Right? I mean, the sin of, of, of people, all who are at the time, all who were, and all who were to be before the end. And what do we get counted? We get counted righteous. We receive his righteousness. We can count it all joy for that, right? That we get counted as righteous and Christ takes our sin. And, and my point is this, right? That's the most evil thing in the history of the world that you could look at and say, how is that going to be used for good? The devil himself thought he was getting victory. And yet that is the greatest thing that's ever occurred in the history of the world for, for you and I. That our sin is, is forgiven, is paid for, it's covered on the cross. And so if God can bring good from that, he can bring good from anything going on in your life, no matter how awful it seems. And I don't mean that to belittle what you're going through. But for you to remember that, no matter what it is you're struggling with, that Christ has met your greatest need. Your, your sin is forgiven. If an asteroid were to like hit the worm right now and destroy all the life on the planet, I don't think it can happen because Christ has to come back first, right? But, um, but if it happened, right? I mean, your sin is forgiven. You will live for eternity with Christ, with God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So let us count it all joy. This morning, if you're, you're with us today, this is a, a sacrament, a sign and seal, of the new covenant of grace. It is, it is for God's people. It is for those who know themselves to be sinners and those who know that, that Christ is their Savior. And so if that's you, right, this is for you. Eat the bread, drink the cup, partake in this sacrament. 
On the other hand, if that's not you, right? There's no shame in that. We, we long for you to have that, but there's no shame in that. We ask that you let the bread and the cup pass you by today, that you listen. There's some prayers in your bulletin that you can, you can read that if you desire that to be true in your life, you can come ask us questions, just about anyone's room, but definitely me or any of our, either of our elders that are here, um, right afterwards. But we do ask that if it's not true of you, if you, it's not your profession of faith, don't partake in this sacrament. It's, it's unsafe and, and God in his word tells us not to do that. Uh, for the rest of you, we are going to eat this, we are going to drink this, and we're going to remember, right, the presence of the Lord here to comfort us in our lives, to remind us of the gospel of which we believe. Uh, let, me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this bread, we thank you for this cup, we, we thank you that they are set apart from everyday use uh, for the sacred use of, of the Lord's Supper. Please nourish us, strengthen our faith this morning as we partake in this together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.